0: Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? How many of you ladies went to the retreat? I want to see who's going to be sleeping this during this service. Okay, I got you two. We got one right here. Man, what an exciting time in the life of Violet! A lot of wonderful things happening. Heard so many good things about the women's retreat this weekend. Uh, some of them are here. Some of them are coming back. But it's just a really neat time together for them. Uh, of course, Pr- Pastor Brian mentioned that uh, Friday. We'll have our Good Friday service, 5 and 7. Really looking forward to that. And, of course, Peeps and Pancakes. And then a week from today, it's hard to believe it's, it's going to be Easter. We're going to have an incredible time together. We are going to have three services. So let me encourage you, uh, for those that can come at 8, we'd love for you to come at 8. It would free up some space for for those who may come at nine thirty or 11. Uh, typically, nine thirty is the... Uh, the most populated uh, service so uh, just putting that out there um today we uh, are are beginning a special week we've it's been called various things it's been called passion week it's been called holy week for 2,000 years i think sometimes there's a disconnect in our christianity for 2,000 years believers have been taking this week and really drawing near to God. It's a really, it's been an incredible thing over the past 2,000 years where people have leaned in and they've listened more closely and they've looked more intently at Jesus during this time of what we call Holy Week. Uh, We're in a series called Following Jesus and we're in week 14. With it being Palm Sunday, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to share with you something that God has used in my life for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years during what we call Holy Week. We're going to do an overview of each of the days in the final week of Jesus. I'm going to zero in on on chapter 14 of Mark. But we're going to really look and and see um, what each of those days has for us today. And then I'm going to give you a tool. You'll see it in your bulletin. Um, You think, man, there's a lot of fill in the blanks today. (laughs) Um, This is just a a, a guide for you this coming week. And so you can fill in whatever you want today. But the big thing with this outline today is, I mean, you're going to be able to use this this whole week to really begin to think as you walk through the final week of Jesus' life. One of the books that has really helped me a lot is a book called And the Angels Were Silent by Max Licato. How many of you read that book? Anybody? And the angels were silent. It's an incredible book. Many of you know that Max Locato writes very creatively. And uh, I love what he says in his intro about the final week of Jesus' life. He says this, knowing he had just one week with the disciples, what did Jesus tell them? Knowing it would be his last time in the temple, how did he act? Conscious that the last sand was slipping through the hourglass, what mattered? Enter the Holy Week and observe. Feel his passion, laughing as children sing, weeping as Jerusalem ignores, scorning as priests accuse, pleading as disciples sleep, feeling sad as Pilate turns. Sense his power. Blind eyes seeing, fruitless trees withering, money changers scampering. Religious leaders cowering, tomb opening. And here is promise. Death has no power. Failure holds no prisoners. Fear has no control for God has come. God has come into your world to take you home. Let's follow Jesus on his final journey. Let's walk with him. Enter the Holy Week and observe. Feel his passion. Sense his power hear his promise. Death has no power. And he makes this statement. He says, let's follow Jesus on his final journey for observing his, we may learn how to make ours. The core truth this morning is simply this, that following Jesus involves walking with Jesus. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to take a few moments to, to walk with Jesus as i've said in your outline or in your uh, bullet and you'll find this outline and so what we're going to do is we're going to track the final days of Jesus eight days from palm sunday to easter sunday and my prayer for you and for me this week is that each week we would dive a little bit deeper into each day and begin to really employ what's called the soap method of bible study well, you know what the SOAP method is, anybody? The SOAP method is simply this Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And so you can see in your notes there's Scripture, there's observation, there's application, and then you include your own prayer. It's a calendar of Jesus' final week. Now, obviously, as I give you this, uh, we're primarily we're looking at Mark in this gospel, we're following Jesus' according to Mark's gospel. And so obviously as you compare the other three gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, you'll find more. But my focus today is to to share some of my observations and some of my applications as I've used this in my own life when it comes to the life of Jesus and cultivating a closer walk with Jesus. So we're going to begin with Palm Sunday, Mark chapter 11, day one of Holy Week. In Mark chapter 11 we said this before in this series, but in Mark chapter 11, it's Palm Sunday, and Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. It's his triumphal entry, and if you've got your Bibles, I've not included in the notes or on the slides today, I want you to take your Bibles and follow along with me in Mark. So as you turn to Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at selected verses as we walk through the final week of Jesus' life. And so Mark 11, verses 8 and 9 It's where I'm going to pick up. Mark 11, verses 8 and 9, when it comes to the triumphal entry, it's Palm Sunday. It says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As I read these verses about the familiar story of Palm Sunday, and as I observe it, there's one word that really stands out to me in this verse, and the one word is "many." What I find interesting is there's, there's this groundswell of support on Palm Sunday. Uh, Mark 11:8 says many people joined in the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt their presence, their action, their words indicated that they were all in on Palm Sunday. What I find fascinating about Palm Sunday is this. There's this jubilation. There's this joy. There's a spreading the cloaks and spreading the branches and everyone's all in on Palm Sunday. But like one commentator said by Friday, many of them would be crying out in the crowd, Crucify him. As I read this passage, I'm reminded that it doesn't take long for mere fans of Jesus to become fickle. You know, as you think about culture today, there's this term used of cultural Christianity. And I don't know if you've you've discovered this or not, or you've even experienced this, but there are no longer, there are not a whole lot of cultural Christian Christians anymore. For a long time in America, there were what we would call cultural Christians. Those who just kind of went to church because it was a cultural thing to do. When the pandemic hit, and when all of us, all the strife has hit, man, it's kind of filtered out a lot of cultural Christians, a lot of fans of Jesus. And so as we think about that, we think about this passage, we see that all the time in sport in the sports world. We call it jumping on the bandwagon. Have you ever done that before? You know, some of us are Ohio State football fans. And last season, a lot of people were on the bandwagon when they were undefeated. But when they lost the Michigan game, a lot of people got off the bandwagon. But they got, they got back on the bandwagon when they made the college football playoffs. As I read this passage, with fresh eyes and a sensitive heart, which that's the way to, to, to approach Scripture, is with, a, a fresh, with fresh eyes and a sensitive heart. What do you see in this passage? as I read this verse. And more importantly, in your own life, when life gets difficult, do I jump off the Jesus bandwagon? Do I follow him on the mountaintops and in the valleys? Let me give you one of my observations. And again, you can write this down or you can keep it blank, whatever you want to do. Don't feel the pressure to get all these down because there's a lot here today. But I'm just sharing with you my observation is this. Many people are merely fans of Jesus when things are going well man we're all in for Jesus but when difficulty comes in we kind of jump off the Jesus bandwagon and the application for me simply is this I must daily choose to be a follower of Jesus and not a fan because if you have lived long enough you know Difficult times come. Discouragement comes in your life. Heartache comes in your life. And sometimes it's just, it's the natural thing to do, to jump off the Jesus bandwagon and just be a fan in the good times. But Jesus calls us to be followers. There's another word that stands out as I look at this passage, and it's the word Hosanna. They cried out Hosanna that day. Hosanna means to express adoration or praise or joy. And it's an expression of praise for God's salvation. This morning, we want to weave in a little bit of prayer time as we walk through this. So let's praise him this morning in prayer as, as true followers. Let's lift up our hosannas to him. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? And let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I praise you. I cry out, Hosanna, because you are. For those that would like to just fill in the blank verbally and out loud, Lord Jesus, I praise you because you are. Who would you say this morning? You're holy. Lord Jesus, I cry out, Hosanna, this morning, and I praise you because you are. You're a healer. Lord Jesus, I cry out Hosanna this morning. I praise you because you are the king. Lord Jesus, I cry out Hosanna. And I praise you because you're merciful. Lord Jesus, I praise you. We praise you this morning. Because, Lord, you are the God who saves We love you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. It's day two of Holy Week, Monday. And on Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem as king. On Sunday, he comes in as king. As on Monday, Jesus enters as priest. We've looked at this passage earlier in this sermon series, but just a quick review as you look at Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 12. You can see this happening. And you can see that he comes in and he does the unthinkable. He cleanses the temple. He turns over tables. As Messiah, he's angry. Why is he angry? Because he's angry because this house of prayer had been turned into a place of extortion and commercialism. And it was just against the nature of God. In the temple, they were insisting on changing the money and charging an incredibly high interest rate to do that. Why did Jesus turn over tables? Because he was angry. The God's house of worship had become a place of extortion and a barrier to the Gentiles to worship. As you look at verse 17, classic verse here, Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus says this. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called house of prayer for all nations my observation from this day is simply this what does jesus need to overturn in my life it would be very easy to take this passage and project it on somebody else man jesus needs to turn over some tables in that person's life because of what that person's doing, it'd be very easy to do that. It would be very easy in our culture to really get kind of dogmatic and legalistic and really begin to be down on everyone and everything and want to turn over some tables. Now, there are some things that need to be called out in our culture, but I think the intent of this passage, if God's word is a mirror, I think the intent of this passage is personal. What does God need to overturn in my life? What am I doing? And the application would simply be this. It would be to pray for Jesus to cleanse my life of ungodly things. This week as you're walking through the days of Jesus, as you come to Monday, really, really think about this observation and this application and any, anyone that, that you may have. You see, so often um, our prayer is, is something other than Jesus, cleanse me, cleanse my life. Cleanse the temple of my life. Drive out everything in me that's not pleasing to you. I want you to do something this morning with your notes. I want you to write down an answer to this question. What does Jesus need to drive out of my life? Just in your own life right now, as you take your your notes and just off to the side there, what would you say Jesus needs to, to drive out in your life? And just right now, maybe just beside Monday, just uh, answer that question. It may be uh, pride. It may be apathy. It may be selfishness. It, it may be doubt. Whatever it is, um, just go ahead and write that down right now as, a, as an act of worship. Say, Lord, this is what needs, needs to be cleansed in my life. And so, Lord Jesus, as we, as we come to Monday in the Holy Week, in this passage, Lord, we're reminded that so often we want to turn over tables in other people's lives and realize some tables need to be overturned in our own lives. So, Lord, whether there's pride or selfishness or apathy or greed or doubt, Lord, even now, would you. Would you cleanse us of those things? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It's Tuesday. It's the third day of the Holy Week. And on Tuesday, whereas Jesus on Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem as king. And on Monday, he comes in as priest. On Tuesday, he comes in as teacher or prophet. And so you'll find in, on Tuesday of, of the Holy Day, uh, Mark eleven twenty 20 through 13, 37, um, it's marked by teaching and, and he's, he's bringing some parables. He's speaking prophetically. And one of the greatest lessons that he teaches that day on Tuesday of, of Passion Week is he teaches what is often called the Great Commandment. Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're really pressing him and they're trying to trap him. and and trick him. And so they were more interested in rules than a relationship with God. That's what prompted their question in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. In fact, if you're following along with me, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, notice what's happening there. Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, Asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I've sought to build my life on the great commandment and the great commission. Because really, if you want to boil it all down, the essence of Christianity is found in two statements that Jesus made, the great commandment and the great commission. And in the great commandment, he really brings it down to it's as simple as as a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with people. You know, I often use the idea, uh, the idea that, that God wants me to love everyone and someone. And the obvious question is, how do I go about loving everyone and someone? Well, you know, I've, I've often used this example, but but with my contact lenses, I can see up cl- close with one eye and far away with the other eye. There's a far-sighted love that God wants us to have for the world. There's a nearsighted love that God wants us us to have for the person right in front of me. So my observation is simply this. God wants me to love everyone and someone. Based on the great commandment, God wants me to love everyone. Everyone, no strings attached. And he also wants me to love someone. That someone, Pastor Brian talked about our neighbor, the person right in front of us. And so the application is simply this, that I will choose to love the person God puts in my path today. Day four of Holy Week is Wednesday. And it's found in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. On Wednesday, the final week of Jesus, Scripture is silent about the activity of Jesus. Some assume it's a day of quiet preparation in Bethany. However, the religious leaders are active. And as you look at Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, notice what it says. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said. Or the people may riot. As I read that passage, there's something that really pops out at me. I don't know if you see it or not, but what's really interesting is what I find incredible is the outright denial of the religious leaders against Jesus in light of his incredible teaching. His incredible miracles. They've seen it all. In fact, as I've watched The Chosen a few times now, it kind of just brings it to light. How can they keep denying Jesus, his power, his love, his mercy, his life? How can they deny it? How can they deny him? One word. It's the same reason that many people throughout the world still deny Jesus. And that one word is simply the word religion. It's an oxymoron. Religion? It's because of religion. Now, religion is neutral in the sense that religious, when you look at the definition of religion, it's just beliefs and worship. It's just a system. It's personal beliefs or values. It's obsession. It's a monk's or a nun's life. So it's interesting when you look at that word religion. It's what we do. Or more importantly, who is the object when it comes to our religion? And obviously, the object for them was not Christ because they wanted to kill Jesus. That's what they're doing in verses 1 and 2. My observation is simply this. It was the religious people who plotted to kill Jesus. It was the religious people who plotted to kill Jesus. And my, my simple... Application is this. Do not let religion get in the way of a relationship with Christ. You see, religion can be deadly when it's not focused on Christ. A lot of bad things have happened in the name of religion. If you're a a student of world history and even Christian history, a lot of bad things have happened in the name of religion. And so we've got to see what's most important to Jesus. And that is is loving him and loving others and and realize that true religion is found in a relationship with Christ. So now we come to Thursday, day five of Holy Week. And I want to park here just, I'm looking at the clock, I want to park here for just a little bit. This is my sermon today, okay? This is my sermon today. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 42. We come to Thursday. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. On Monday, he enters Jerusalem as priest. On Tuesday, he enters Jerusalem as a prophet. On Thursday, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the lamb who would be slain for our sins. On Thursday of the final week of Jesus' life, a number of things happen. He eats the Passover meal with his disciples, institutes the Lord's Supper. He washes his disciples' feet. He points out the betrayal of the one of the 12 who would betray him. But it's verses 32 through 42 that really captured my heart this week. And I want you to turn there. And if you if you want, you can turn over your sheet and take some notes here. But uh, But it's verses 32 through 42 that really just captured my heart this week. Verse 32 of Mark chapter 14. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Verse 39, once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, there's so much there, but in the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is in this passage, just before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, notice what he does. He cries out to his Father. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What's he saying here? He's a, he knows he's about to bear God's judgment for the sin of the world. And he uses the metaphor of cup, of God's righteous wrath being poured out on sinners, being poured out on him as a cup, if you will. And my observation is this, that Jesus submitted to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the victory was won. He submitted to the Father's will And the application is simply this. From what Jesus teaches us here, it's not about my will. It's about God's will. The name Gethsemane means, some of you may know this, but the, so you think about the Garden of Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane is from the Aramaic and it means olive press. So having gone to Israel, some of you have been there, the Garden of Gethsemane, you see these huge trees these huge olive trees. And in the midst of that back then and even now, there's a place where olive trees grew and they produced fruit. And the olives were collected, placed in a press, and the precious olive oil was extracted from those olive trees under intense pressure. First thing you need to know about Gethsemane is this. Number one, the Garden of Gethsemane was a place of pain. It was a place of pressing. Jesus would be pressed in a time of intense emotional and spiritual trial. It says here in this passage, Jesus was deeply distressed. He was troubled. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of pain. Secondly, the Garden of Gethsemane was a place of prayer. Jesus prostrated himself on the ground. And he cries out to the Father, Abba. That's an Aramaic term that is equivalent to our word, daddy. There's this intimacy with God. He calls him daddy. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of pain, it was a place of prayer, and it was a place of priorities. Jesus had one overriding priority He lived to do the will of His Father. And he prayed this, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's what I want you to get this morning, more than anything else. Life is filled with Gethsemane moments. Your life is filled with Gethsemane moments, where you come under intense pain and intense pressure. it's what you do with those Gethsemane moments that will make all the difference in the world. Do you see what Jesus did with his Gethsemane moment where he's being pressed? He prays. Gethsemane moments, if you want to write this down, Gethsemane moments require Gethsemane prayers. And a Gethsemane prayer is simply this. Father, Father, It's not about my will. I don't understand what I'm going through right now. I don't understand the pain, the intense pain that I'm going through right now. But I do know this. It's not about my will. It's about your will. That's what we learn from Jesus. These Gethsemane moments. On my first trip to Jerusalem, I was overwhelmed as I visited this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And I kind of just broke down I just, I just was emotionally a mess when I read this sign in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Jesus, in deepest night and agony, you spoke these words of trust and surrender to God the Father in Gethsemane. In love and gratitude, I want to say in times of fear and distress, my Father, I do not understand, but I trust you. It was interesting. It was 2007 when I snapped this picture at this sign. And even in Israel, It couldn't take away the intense pain I was going through in my life at that time. And God just met me in a very deep way in the Garden of Gethsemane and really helped me to see even in the most difficult times of our lives, we can submit to him and trust him because he loves us. Because he is Abba. He's our daddy. He loves us. Let's pause just for a moment. This is a place to pray. So just bow your heads just for a moment. As we think about Jesus' example here, we can trust the Father's will, even in the most difficult times of our lives. We can submit to him and trust him. Let's pray together. Father, I can trust your will, even in times of, how would you fill in the blank this morning as we pray together? And just verbally, as you want to say it out loud, Father, I can trust your will even in the times of suffering. suffering, Excuse me. Darkness. darkness, Anxiety. Anxiety. Father, I can trust your will even in times of helplessness. Father, I can trust your will even in times of of hurt and doubt and pain. So, Lord, when we come to those Gethsemane moments, Lord Jesus, may we learn from you to pray Gethsemane prayers. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, we come to, to day six of Holy Week. It's Good Friday. And you'll find that in Mark 14, 43 through Mark 15, 47. It's Friday, and Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested by the authorities, and he's crucified, and he's mocked. In fact, Mark 15, 31 through 32, as you follow along in your Bibles, Mark 15, 31 through 32, notice what's happening. Verse 31, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The obvious question is what kept Jesus on the cross? We're told that his father, who would have sent 12 legions of angels to, to help him, there was, was 72,000 angels at his disposal. Yet it was not God's will for him to be rescued. It was God's will for him to be arrested and crucified. Why? Because John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that if we believe in him, we'll not perish but have eternal life. It was love that kept Jesus on the cross. In fact, that's the observation. It was love. It was God's love that kept Jesus on the cross. And the application for me is simply this. Christ died for me. Charles Spurgeon, who was perhaps the greatest preacher ever, said this. My entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. He died for me. He died for you. He died for every person you'll lock eyes with this week. And so I want to ask you to do something right now as we kind of wind it down here in just a moment. There's a connect card in front of you in the seat in front of you. Would you pull out a connect card just right now? And everybody, if you do that, in fact, I'm going to grab one right now. I don't have one. I'm going to grab one. Thank you. If you'll turn that over, you don't have to put your name on it if you don't want. Um, every year we do something I think is really powerful as a church. We, we pray for someone this Easter time that we know that needs Jesus, that Jesus died for. And so on the, on the back of the card where it says at the bottom, how can we pray for you? Um, just where the blanks are, would you just put that person's name? Just write that person's name down. Who do I need to pray for? Who do I want to pray for? We're going to collect these, and you can put them in the black box and on your way out in just a moment. But we'll pray for these people, these various family, friends, um, this week as a staff. So let me encourage you right now to take a moment, write down the name or names of people you know that need Jesus. Let's pray for them right now. Lord, you, you know every name that we've written down right now. So, Lord, we, we pray for these that we've written down, Lord, that this holy week, coming on Easter, Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us um, just encouragement to pray for them and to love them and even help them, Lord. to come to Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. On your way out, again, I'd encourage you to take that, that card and put it in the black box on the way out. As we come to day seven of Holy Week, it's Saturday. It's Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Mark doesn't say anything about it. But on Saturday, the body of Jesus is in the tomb, having been placed there by Joseph of Arimathea. The Gospels do not provide any information regarding the activity of the disciples on the Sabbath, Friday sundown to Saturday, or Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Matthew alone records activity on Saturday. And we come to, to Matthew 27, um, the soldiers explain to Pilate that this imposter has said this after three days he will rise again. And so Pilate. says in Matthew 27, 65 through 66, take a guard, go make the tomb secure. So that, so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. My observation is simply this. Nothing could prevent Jesus from rising again. Death has no power. I feel like I have to say this. I want to say this. This past Monday just a tragic event happened in our country again and we often wonder how how can those things happen it's just heart-wrenching it's heart-wrenching when we see that and so how do how do we navigate that we navigate it knowing ultimately that there is hope beyond this world. That death has no power. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of our lives. And so we have that hope, even in the most difficult times in our country, and in our world. That brings us to Easter, day eight of Holy Week. Mark 16:1 through eight. I'm going to leave that for next week and I'm just going to give you this observation we can have hope because Jesus is alive we can have hope because Jesus is alive and the application is simply this because he lives I can face tomorrow I can face tomorrow I invite you To bring friends and family next week, next Sunday, on Easter. As we close this morning, we can cultivate a close walk with Jesus, number one, as we reflect this week. As we reflect, as we take time, as we walk through this outline and take your Bible, you spend time reflecting on the words and actions of Christ. Number two, as you take this outline and walk every day with Jesus, you can refocus You can refocus about who Jesus is and what he wants you to do. And then finally, number three, you can reach out to others this week and show and share the love of Jesus to those around you. May we worship Jesus this morning and this week. May we worship him as king. May we worship him as prophet and priest and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and as the resurrected Lord who conquered death. Let's pray.